1: And the collection is free of sulfates, parabens, dyes, and mineral oil. So experience something new and discover what's good with the Pantene Nutrient Blends Collection. Dear Young Rocker is more than just a podcast about music. It's a memoir of how it feels to survive high school when you don't
2: fit in and the freeing feeling of picking up a guitar for the first time. It's also advice for anyone who is or was young and has ever felt weird or alone. Dear Young Rocker is written and narrated by me, Chelsea Erson, executive produced by Jake Brennan, and comes to you from Double Elvis Productions. Listen to Dear Young Rocker on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Hey, this is Bridget. And this is Annie. And you're listening to Stuff Mom Never Told You. And today, we want to revisit one of my favorite Sminty episodes that we've done here on the show, and that is the topic of black women of Riot Girl. Um, this is a topic that is near and dear to my heart as a black woman punk rocker myself. Um, I love Riot Girl music, punk music, all music really, but punk music has a, a special place in my heart, and this, this episode does too.
1: Yeah, and it happens to coincide with another project that um, you've been working on, Bridget, and one that I'm very excited about, and I think that our listeners would be very excited about.
3: I hope so. I'm really excited to share it with y'all. So if you've ever listened to Sminty and thought, gee, I'd love to hear Bridget talk more about activism and music and art and culture, well now's your chance. I am so happy to announce a partnership between How Stuff Works and Afropunk called Afropunk Solution Sessions Podcast hosted by yours truly and my good friend, Eve's Jeffcoat. Um, Really what we want to do with Afropunk is do a deep dive in cultural and social and political identity through things like activism and art and politics and dance and all of that. And yeah, if you you know anything about Afropunk, you know it's a huge, vibrant global movement that has culture and arts festivals in Atlanta, Brooklyn, Paris, Johannesburg, South Africa, um, it really started from a, a documentary called Afro Punk about Black identity in punk spaces and sort of what it's like being kind of double marginalized um, as many people of color who are involved in these kinds of spaces find themselves. And from there, it really spun out into a, a cultural movement.
1: Yeah, and I've had the pleasure of working on some of them and also hearing it come together, and um, it's it's really beautiful and powerful. I'm super proud and super pumped, and uh, you did fantastic work on it, Bridget.
3: Well, Annie, you also did fantastic work on it because our gal Annie, before I was ever even really in the mix, spent how long in Johannesburg? Um, I think seven
1: days, about eight days.
3: So she spent eight days in Johannesburg, South Africa. She went with almost no notice to gather footage— of Afropunk Johannesburg and Solution Sessions Johannesburg, and it came out masterfully. So it's really kind of a, it's an interesting Bedfellows kind of project. If you listen to some of the other How Stuff Works podcasts, it's, there's a lot of familiar voices involved, both in front of the scenes and behind the scenes. If you listen to Question Booth, um, our own Dylan Fagan is a producer on Afropunk. Annie has her hands in the pot on Afropunk. Um, If you listen to Stuff of Life, Julie Douglas is involved in Afropunk. So it's really kind of a fun, collaborative project from some folks some of y'all might know if you listen to other shows on the network.
1: Absolutely. And um, if that hasn't gotten you excited enough, we have a little little taste, a, a bit of a trailer for you right here. Are you tired of politicians who make a lot of promises but don't get anything done? Fed up with white people constantly threatening to take away your rights? Exhausted by being treated like you're less than human? Done with being underestimated? Sick and tired of being sick and tired? Well, here at Afropunk, we've got the solutions. The
3: American dream is being able to walk out Work hard on your own and meet the world on your own terms and be celebrated for it. Being black and walking in that truth is very important to me. It's important to have any kind of space that affirms that they are not exclusionary. Be an alternative to what is represented as this sort of monolithic, singular idea of black identity in popular culture. I've been
2: shot just because my heart.
1: Education has always been a tool for our collective
3: liberation. We have to teach our kids to build networks and build coalition. And so, if we educate our kids from this
1: collective consciousness across multiple intersections of identity. Then we can start to build our own institutions in our community. And you know, that's really, to me, the answer. That
3: is the- of today's conversation to understand how it is that we need to really band together to come together to to have our coalition to have
1: our community life is not just divisive it's actually people are coming together overcoming
3: racism operates on the belief that we can continue to address
1: the symptoms of educational inequity or we can finally address the cause which is systemic racism
0: I think it's so
3: important that we begin to shake the shame, the guilt, to stand up for ourselves, to reclaim our bodies, reclaim our minds, reclaim our souls, and reclaim the, the, the things that belong to us. Be proud of who you are and know that your story is powerful. The Solution Sessions. It's where real-world problems meet fearless solutions. So yeah, if you are listening to that and you thought, gee... My issue in life is that I'm not hearing Bridget Todd enough. <laughs> That's all of our issues in life, Bridget. <laughs> I mean, I, I hate to say this, like, like, if you know me, you know, like, I'm I hate self promotion, and even this feels very like, oh, I hate this. But it would be really awesome if you could subscribe, if you could rate and review us, because that really does help um, folks find the show in their feeds. And honestly, this is this is the kind of show that I've always wanted to make. I'm dating myself quite a bit here, but. I remember when Afropunk was first put on my radar. I was in college. I was a sophomore in college. And people were sort of passing the DVD of the documentary around to the dorms. And, you know, people were gathering in small groups to watch it. And for me, as a a woman of color who was interested in music and culture, it was like seeing myself reflected on screen. And, you know, I often felt like a bit of a odd duck in a lot of ways and watching the afropunk documentary that was one of the first times i thought oh my god there's so many of us it's not just me who feels out of place all the time and never feels like they quite fit in and is interested in sort of what those conversations mean so if that sounds like you or if that sounds like a conversation that you would be interested to have with us please check it out you can find us on spotify apple podcasts google play or wherever you get your podcasts and please Listen, uh, rate, subscribe, review, all of that. And, yeah, please enjoy this collaborative dream project of mine. Yes.
1: Who knew, Bridget, when you're a college sophomore and you're watching the documentary, look at you now. Oh, my God.
3: College Bridget would be shitting her pants right
1: now. <laughs> <laughs> maybe I did my pants out of happiness. <laughs> maybe. Maybe you did. Um, <laughs> yeah, so please check that out. And in the meantime... Check out this uh, this uh, old favorite of ours. If you've
3: listened to Kristen and Caroline tackle this topic, um, we're going to be doing it a little bit different. So you can think of this as really a companion piece to the really great episode they put out um, called Women and Punk. Um, I have been a long-term uh, love lover of all things punk, really all things music. In college, I was actually a radio DJ at my local college radio station, WZMB, Greenville, North Carolina.
2: Oh, my God. You've been behind the mic for a while. Oh, then. I have. No uh, wonder you look
3: such, like <laughs> such a natural for the podcast. Yes, I was DJ Coleslaw was my handle. <laughs> and that is a reference to uh, Enid Coleslaw from the comic book Ghost World. And I DJed a radio show, only punk music. So I've been a big punk fan for a long time. I've always loved Riot Girl, And today I am so thrilled to talk through some of the ways that black women have kind of sadly been erased in the history of punk music and the history of retelling um, the story behind what you might think of as Riot Girl and why that is.
2: Yeah, and punk rock, I think, is typically thought of as a white thing. It is. Right? It, or at least it's predominantly. Even like punk rock of the 80s and 90s, we think of a lot of British bands that come to mind, like The Clash, what is it, The Sex Pistols... And even into the sort of 90s grunge, which I know is not technically the same exact thing as punk. I'm no punk expert. But I think of a lot of angry white people.
3: Totally. And I think I think that perception does persist. And I think that's fair because punk definitely has roots in this hyper-masculine um, response to sort of white working class frustration, mm. particularly in the UK. So it's totally fair. But that doesn't mean that there wasn't a place for Black musicians, particularly black women, in these movements. Um, There's this great quote from Dazed Magazine. There is no denying that the UK punk scene was in part driven by the anger and isolation felt by white working class. But punk music is not the sole property of whiteness, even though to many people of my generation it may appear that way at first glance. Like many facets of pop culture, its historical image has been whitewashed. When you think about punk's history, it's bands like The Clash, The Sex Pistols, The Ramones that immediately come to mind. And so I think it's important that even though, yes, it may have these roots in in white frustrations Mm. of the working class, punk music has the same kind of roots in black communities.
2: Yeah, and in so many ways, as we've talked about music and cultural appropriation in the past, O'Miley comes to mind. But what I find really interesting about punk here is that... That article goes on to say that in many ways, black people were the original counterculture figures. And in so many ways, like rock and roll has its roots in black culture.
3: Completely. I mean, if you take in, you know, classes on on anthrop- cultural anthropology and where punk and rock and roll come from, it really undeniably does have roots in, in black musicians. Going back to folks like Chuck Berry and Bo Diddley, these are folks who were really improvising, really trying a lot of new things, and a lot of why things like rock and roll and then later punk, why they stuck around so, so fervently. So, for instance, there's always been this really obvious connection between punk music and, you know, musical genres like reggae. I think that you can definitely hear their influence in there. And it's just like this journalist Charlie Birkenhurst notes, the spirit of punk is present and always has been in music made by black people. So really... When you're thinking of punk as this white art form, it can just as easily be said to be a black art form as well.
2: Yeah. So that is interesting how when you think of punk rock in particular, it has been whitewashed, even though the roots of punk rock came from a lot of black artists. If you think about rock and roll writ large, there's a lot of whiteness associated with rock and roll and with its spinoff of punk rock. But in reality, a lot of that cultural appropriation started way back in the 50s. So NYU's uh, cultural anthropologist professor Maureen Mahan uh, explains in this book, what are you doing here? A black woman's life and liberation in heavy metal. She says that it, you know, this as more white people started to be attracted to rock and roll, black people started to think this is for them, not for us. There were always black people participating and present, but they had started to be outnumbered. So beyond the sheer outnumbering, white rock musicians often had more success performing songs originally recorded by black blues, R&B, and rock musicians. I'm thinking Elvis, right? Elvis became—he was the original Miley. (laughs) Oh, he was. (laughs) Right? Like, he became controversial, and he became known for the ways in which that white southern dude was— Basically,
3: embracing artistry that had originally really been a black thing. Right. And if you've ever seen the movie Dream Girls, which, by the way, if you haven't seen it, it's so good, um, they illustrate this so nicely with the idea of they have this soulful song that this majority, that this black girl group, you know, sings and that when that song is re recorded by white teenagers that sound very bubbly, it becomes an instant smash hit. Huh. Um and so I think, you know, there are so many illustrations of that throughout culture. But really it's it's just like Maureen Mahone says, this idea that it becomes something that you then associate with whiteness, whether it actually has roots in whiteness alone, irregardless of that, it just becomes something that you think of as white.
1: Mm.
3: And I think As someone who has been a long, you know, lover of all kinds of music, but specifically punk, that certainly jives with my personal experience. You know, I grew up feeling very isolated being like a black punk fan, particularly a black, a black female punk fan. But I grew up feeling really self-conscious for liking something that was, quote unquote, for white kids. Um, I grew up, I wouldn't say I was teased for it, but I was never very open about my, my, you know, love of punk and I, I like all, all, all different kinds of music, but particularly I really like punk, but I never felt comfortable talking about it. When I would buy CDs at the record store, I always remember feeling this kind of weird sense of shame, huh. or I would sometimes, this is so embarrassing, but I would sometimes ask, um, I remember I was buying a Weezer CD, and I asked, do you guys offer gift wrapping? Because I didn't want the, the teller to be like, oh, why is this black girl buying a Weezer CD? <laughs> it's definitely been part of my wow. upbringing. Wow. And I think from the research, you actually see a lot of of black kids who, who grow up feeling this way. Huh. Um, there's been an entire movement started called the Afropunk Movement that started as a collection of message boards online for other black punk fans to find each other and connect and swap stories and swap zines and swap CDs. Now that whole movement has grown into an international phenomenon. They have they have a global um, festival. They have festivals in South Africa, New York, Atlanta, Brooklyn. And it's really taken off as this cultural thing. Now it's sort of, it started as sort of this thing that a lot of black kids felt kind of anxiety around. But now it's sort of the who's who of like the black <laughs> glam, glam folks. You see lots of, you know, there was a spread in Vogue magazine of the various fashions that Punk and oh Solange Knowles performs there. And right. It's just, it's, now it's this like very hip, cool thing. But in the beginning, it definitely did not feel that way. So would you say
2: Afro-punk is a different genre, or is it a reclaiming of a genre that had been whitewashed?
3: I think it's a reclaiming, and I think it's sort of carving out space for these black punk fans who have long felt isolated, ignored, erased, or just felt kind of weird about liking something that has been associated Mm. so heavily with whiteness. It's a reclaiming and a way of opening up space for those folks to connect and meet each other and feel good about it. So basically, what it comes down to is that black folks aren't the people that we talk about when we talk about punk music, and we're going to talk about why that's such a big problem after this quick break.
0: Okay, so a recent study found that a great hair day makes you happier and more confident, but that same study also revealed that 95% of women don't feel great about their hair.
1: I can definitely relate to the confidence part because if my hair is doing something And Sundays on NBC, watch it live. There's sure to be big twists and huge surprises. So you'll want to enjoy your Good Girls experience in a spoiler-free zone.
0: The all-new, all-hilarious season of Good Girls, Sundays on NBC and stream anytime. And we're back. So the erasure of people of
3: color from depictions of the punk movement really came to a head pretty recently amidst criticism that the recent Riot Girl collection at NYU's Fail Library and a recent book of the same name chronicling the movement that all but erased black women. Now, Kristen and Caroline, again, they have this great episode all about uh, the riot girl movement, and they mentioned this collection, this NYU collection, in that episode.
2: So wait, can you back up and, and explain to me? Because I had not really heard of the term riot girl. Before today's episode, so what what is Riot
3: Girl all about? Yeah, so according to Race and Riot Girl from a journal out of the University of Washington's Department of Gender Studies, quote Riot Girl is an international underground feminist movement, mainly youth oriented, that initially emerged from the West Coast American alternative and punk music scene. Um, you could think of that as bands like the Slits, the Raincoats, Heavens to Betsy. This was really and Carol, Kristen and Caroline, shout out to them because they break this down so nicely. This was really a movement about young women getting to college, feeling a little bit frustrated with the lack of ability to talk about things they were dealing with, things like sexual assault, things like sexism, and expressing those frustrations through music.
2: And in this case, riot girl is spelled with a bunch of R's in there, right? So it's like a growl. Riot Grr- girl. Yeah. So these are like angry young women screaming, slash shouting, slash singing their their feels. Which I think is a really cool artistic expression of uh, totally understandable and righteous anger.
3: Yeah, I mean, I I'm just to be clear, I love Riot Girl. I think a lot of what we're gonna talk about in today's episode critiques and pushes back on the whiteness of the spaces that Riot Girl presented, but I really found my voice through a lot of these screaming young women, through folks like Kathleen Hannah, who's one of my idols, through bands like La Tigre. These were groups that that really were seminal in my development, so I don't want it to come off like I'm trashing them because I'm definitely not. But I think it's important that we sort of think back to the criticisms of the movement and Mm. why certain women maybe didn't feel as involved as they maybe could have or should have.
2: And it actually really reflects the fractions within the feminist space more broadly, right? I think we've talked on this and this show and by the way, I think we're screaming uh, angry women on the podcast variety on occasion, too. So I fully identify with this artistry and this art form. But, um, it, you know, we've talked on this show before about the friction when it comes to Uh, movements to end racism and movements to end sexism and the importance of intersectionality. And this is really taking that intersectional feminist lens and bringing it to the punk music scene.
3: Totally. Basically the same arguments that black feminists and white feminists are having today in online spaces and academia, those same arguments were happening on the mosh pit, you might say, during the Riot (laughs) Riot Grrrl movement. Things like, yeah, I mean, really. The mosh pit. Oh my (laughs) God. I forgot about that. Have you ever been in a mosh
2: pit? Uh, I've yeah, I've like, not always consensually. Right? Like, oh. I've been—I've
3: borne witness to a mosh pit. I've been on the outer ring of a mosh pit.
0: Oh,
1: man.
3: I've been in a couple of mosh pits. I'll never forget seeing a friend of mine break her nose oh. taking an elbow to the face at a no-age show in oh a mosh pit. Oh, my God. So, You're so hardcore. <laughs> I mean, bit. I didn't take an elbow to the nose. <laughs> I saw my friend do it, which is hardcore. Was
2: that I, the end of your concert experience? Um, yeah. Or did you stick it out? I, okay. I
3: think— she was like, we have to leave right now. <laughs> I'm, like, gushing blood from my nose. <laughs> and I was like, wait, I want to see it. I want to stay. <laughs> oh, my God. So really, these issues of intersectionality yeah. were really coming to a head in the Viacral spaces. The same things that I think a lot of feminists still grapple with today— Things like um, issues of the white middle class women being elevated over those of women of color. Things of having to, cho- feeling like you have to choose between your race and your gender as opposed to having that be, you know, an intersectional framework. These are the same arguments we're having today and they were the same arguments playing out in the Riot girl scene.
2: It's fascinating to see how it applies to totally different subsets of society, of the artistic and musical variety, right? And this article by Gabby Bess in Broadly called Alternatives to Alternatives, The Black Girls Riot Ignored uh, really underscores the experience of being, let's say, a young black punk fan like you, Bridget, and reading these things like a 1992 Newsweek article that literally defined the movement, the riot girl movement, as something that was, quote, young, white, suburban and middle class, basically literally erasing black women or women who didn't fit any of those categorizations. Um, And it just sort of confirms the explicit whiteness that was brought to the riot girl scene by journalists who are covering it and describing it to to those who might not have been in it.
3: Exactly. And, And a line that resonated with me so much from that article There were black women who imbibed with the spirit of punk in their bones outside the riot girl movement as well. These women carved out their own feminist pathways into the hardcore scene precisely because they were rendered invisible by the riot girl movement. And what I think jumps out at me at that quote is that because black women were marginalized, both by the larger punk scene, you know, with lots of white dudes, and through the Riot Grrrl scene that emerged from that scene, which is mostly white women, um, they really were forced to carve out their own pathways for expression and kind of build these alternatives to the alternative's alternative, right? <laughs> if, if punk is an alternative and Riot Grrrl is an alternative to punk, these black women had to say, okay, we're making another alternative to all those different alternatives.
2: It's, again, existing at the intersection of being a black woman in a space that makes all women marginalized and then further makes women of color not feel included in that space that was carved out for women in a male-dominated space.
3: Exactly. Um, there's a really famous uh, black feminist theorist called named Pat Hill Collins, and she has this great theory called the matrix of domination, which basically means that as black women or marginalized women, all of our oppression is interconnected and sort of magnified because it's interconnected. And in reading about you know, black punk women. That just—I was thinking about that theory, like jumping up in my head as I was reading. One of these uh, black punk rockers who was interviewed for this article really sort of hit the nail on the head. She said the double burden of being a black girl who has to deal with the white girls in the scene, on top of being a girl who has to deal with the white boys who dominated the mosh pit at punk shows. Right. And so again, you can see how it's this double bind of having to deal with. The isolation from these white guys in mosh pits who are awful and having to deal with these white riot girls who could also be awful in their own ways, it sounds like, as well.
2: Yeah, and can we explore what we mean by being awful just a little bit here, too? Because it doesn't take explicit intent to be awful in this case. What we're really talking about is not being inclusive. Right. And that is just as awful because you're basically erasing the right of— women of color, in this case, to exist in a space that doesn't even acknowledge their presence.
3: Exactly. Um, one of the punk rockers interviewed in this article really talked about how, for her, this idea that a lot of female white female riot girls had that, you know, I want to do a mosh pit where it's going to be safe, it's just going to be women. She actually talked about how she never felt unsafe because she was a woman. She felt unsafe because she was black. And huh. that the conversation that was going on around um, women in punk scenes and how they were treated totally forced her to erase her blackness, even though that's impossible. And so mm. it's just like what you said. When I say awful, I mean just not keeping in mind um, inclusivity and intersectionality when you're talking about this. And then also making marginalized women feel like they should be grateful for even being included at all. Right. Saying, you know, oh, the fact that you were even invited into this scene, it doesn't matter if we overlook you or erase you or completely don't even speak to your issues, you should be thankful to be here at all. Right. And I see that writ large in the feminist movement a lot, those tensions. Definitely.
2: And I think that also became such an issue when Riot Girl was treated in a retrospective light more, more recently. So at that NYU collection, looking back at Riot Girl, um, I find it really fascinating to say that um, now with it becoming this sort of symbol that we can look back on for punk and women in punk, the fact that women of color are being left out even in retrospection is truly problematic. It doubles down on that experience of ignorance. It doubles down on that exclusion of women of color being invited to even look back on that era and look back on that movement and look back on the, the rise of the punk scene. And as Mimi T. Nguyen, professor of gender studies and women's studies and Asian American studies at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign put it, quote, with Riot Girl now becoming the subject of so much retrospection, I argue that how the critiques of women of color are narrated is important to how we remember feminisms and how we produced feminist futures. If Riot Girl fell apart because of a race riot, how is this to be remembered? As catastrophic melee? As course correction? As a brief interruption? And how then are we to face the future with certain progress having been achieved or with violence, including erasure, deferral, or annexation, not having ended? So basically, what she's saying is, looking back on this movement, how we talk about race impacts how we can all move forward in either an inclusive or not so inclusive way.
3: Definitely. And I struggle with this a little bit because I love a lot of these Riot Grrrl figures. And why I loved them is because they talked openly about things that weren't pretty and weren't great and weren't easy. They talked about sexual assault. They talked about, you know, the patriarchy. They talked about things that weren't easy. And it's I, I see them now, and I really wish I had seen more artists using race and conversations around race in their art in those ways. Um, but one musician that I really want to shout out and who was really seminal in black punk and the Riot Grrrl and alternative movements that sprang up for black women is Tamara Kelly Brown. Um, she is an artist who has performed with bands like Fishbone, which is another seminal, mostly black uh, punk band, and other acts like Outkast. Shout out to them because we're here in Atlanta. Uh-huh. <laughs> And she even was the face of the documentary about Afropunk. So if you if you bought that movie, that DVD, she is the woman on the cover. Um, and she's actually talked about how even though she is associated with the Afropunk movement now, back in the day, like in the 90s in New York City... She didn't have the benefit of an online message board for Black punks, and it was a totally isolating experience for her. Huh. And she writes about how sort of Riot Girl at the time just wasn't speaking to her issues. She was a Black woman living in these really intense uh, urban environments that were infested with crime, and she didn't feel safe. And so this idea that Riot Girl for her represented this sort of um, safe, sanitized version of white. Womanhood, right? That just did not jive with what she was experiencing, which is being a black woman with a shaved head, having to exist in these, you know, uh, very tough streets and sort of live day to day. She didn't see her own experiences being reflected in the music that Riot Girl was putting out. Right. And I
2: love the way that she described that frustration as saying, quote, Riot Girl felt like a bubblegum expression. You know, she's talking about having to be out in the world and just survive. I have to survive, I have to defend myself, she said, not, not like her counterparts who were sort of the white punk artists in the riot girl scene, saying things like, You just think I can't play because I'm a girl. You know, she really described it as being a really uh a lack of equivalence in, right. it, in terms of the the complaints that she was talking about and sort of the frustration and anger that she brought to her punk artistry versus some of what was more mainstream in the Riot Girl movement.
3: Totally. And I think we should talk more about Brown, her eventual contributions to the Riot Girl scene and the alternatives that sprang up after this quick break.
0: Okay. So a recent study found that a great hair day makes you happier and more confident. But that same study also revealed that 95% of women don't feel great about their hair.
1: I can definitely relate to the confidence part because...
3: He constantly bricks threes, and he'll completely hack you and then put his hands up and say, no foul, no foul. With GEICO, it's easy to switch and save on car insurance. No need to fake an ankle sprain because you're absolutely exhausted. So switch and save with GEICO. It's almost better than sports. And we're back, and we were just talking about how black women feeling isolated from the punk and riot girl scenes were really forced to carve out their own spaces as an alternative to the Riot Grrrl scene that did not seem very inclusive to them. And what I love about this is that it starts with a party, like most (laughs) good things in life. Um, Brown met up with other rockers uh, like Maya Glick and Honey Child Coleman and eventually organized something called Sister Girl Riots, a series of DIY punk shows for black women as an alternative to the punk scene that was dominated by white men. And the Riot Grrrl scene dominated by white women. Their first show was Valentine's Day of 1997 and it sounds lit. <laughs> I just love the like reclaiming of the name too.
2: Sister Girl with a hard girl in there too, which is a great way to sort of highlight the sisters involved in the scene, right? Like yeah. black women in the scene. And one of the fun, fun facts about the Sister Girl Riots is that they made space for white Allyship, so they really went out of their way to be inclusive, um, even more so than I would say Riot Girl as a movement had been for Black women or for women of color in the punk scene. So iconic feminist punk band, um, sort of lead the Slits is Ari Up, one of your favorite musicians. I love the Slits so much. <laughs> she performed as a you know as a white woman in the Riot Girl scene. She performed as an opener at, at a Sister Girl Ally. Um, So it's it's really interesting to see that behavior of inclusivity modeled through the sister girl riots.
3: And so you might be thinking, why does anyone care about this? Who cares? No black women in punk? Sure. Why is that an issue? (laughs) But it's an issue because representation really does matter. If you listen to our Lisa Simpson episode, you know that it's important for people of all kinds to see themselves reflected in different spaces. And Growing up, I never saw myself reflected in this this scene that I loved so much and that connected that I connected with so much. And so, having these conversations now and going back and lifting up the examples of Black women in the punk scene is very, very important. And I think that someone who noted this very well is Loranda Davis, who is the president of the Black Rock, the Black Rock Coalition. She argues for the necessity of more representation, not just for black women in punk, but for black women in general. She writes, I never looked at a magazine and thought that that was what I was supposed to look like. On the one hand, it's actually kind of liberating to to not be the standard for what womanhood is. That standard put a lot of women in boxes, and they lived their lives trying to get out of that box. Black women were never even allowed in the box. Mm -hmm. I wasn't looking at a TV saying, oh, that represents me. I wasn't listening to music telling me about my experience. I had experiences that told me I wasn't concerned with these things that the happy songs were about. And so I think that quote really nails it for me why it's so important to see yourself reflected, why representation really does matter. In media of all kinds, including music. Totally. Yeah. And I think it's any episode about the history of black women and punk would be we'd be remiss to not mention that one of the songs that I think of as the Feminist punk battle cry is actually, we have it because of a black woman. Um, You probably know the song. It's Oh, Bondage, Up Yours by the X-Ray Specs. And they had this amazing black woman uh, singer called Polystyrene, which is a pun on sort of the plastic thing that you get your hamburgers wrapped in. Um, And really, what I think makes this song such a feminist battle cry is the opening lines, which if you know the song, you know how it goes. Well, which we're going to play yeah, for our
2: listeners, You right? should definitely play yeah. it.
3: Um, it starts with her saying really quietly, some people think that little girls should be seen and not heard, but I say... And then it turns into this intense, intense screech, oh, bondage, up yours. And <laughs> it's just an amazing song. You'll hear it soon. It's so great. If you don't know it, you're going to love it. Some people think little girls should be seen and not heard,
0: but I think... Oh, bondage, up yours!
2: And what I love is not only the artistry that she brings to her music, but also her background, her story. Um, They, here in The Independent, they write of Polly as a dumpy, frumpy, almost willfully unsexual girl from Brixton with braces on her teeth. Polly Styrene was a perfect candidate to find herself through punk, turning this persona on its head into an art form She became one of the movement's principal female figures.
3: Her song, Oh Bondage Up Yours, a feminist rallying cry. I love it so much. And even Kathleen Hannis, who is often cited as an early originator of Riot Grrrl, although she would probably push back against that title, she often cites Polly as a major musical influence. In Polly's obituary in the New York Times, Kathleen Hanna was quoted as saying, Polly is the way for me as a female singer who wanted to sing about ideas. Her lyrics influence everyone I know who makes music. And I think that's so important when you have this person who is often cited as a seminal figure in punk who went on to do all these really important uh, female-led projects like La Tigre and Bikini Kill, saying, oh, if it wasn't for Polly and X-Ray Specs, these folks might not even be here. And let's talk a little bit now about
2: some... Black women artists in the punk scene now that we should all be paying more attention to? Because for me, I think the confines of what qualifies as punk or Afropunk can be more blurry than... um, I don't know. I I feel like for me, as, as I think less of an audiophile than you be... It can be a little bit blurry to understand exactly what punk we should be checking out now. So, what artists would you recommend our listeners to check yeah, out if for you're more? Interest,
3: if you're, yeah, if you're interested in more um, rock music from black ladies, there's a lot of, you're in luck. This, this is a great time <laughs> for it. Um, one band that I have to sort of shout out is the Alabama Shakes. Alabama Shakes is fronted by a black woman. Their hit song, don't want to fight. Won Grammys for Best Rock Song and Best Rock Performance. And when they won, it was the first time a Black woman had won or been nominated in those categories since Tracy Chapman in 1997. That's crazy. Yes, and shout out to Tracy Chapman because <gasps> I know. For, like for, Speaking of formative Black women in my in my musical, I wouldn't um, even history, have thought
2: of her as punk.
3: Tracy Chapman. Yeah, she's more. She's not really punk. She's more soul, rock soul. R&B. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, not R and B. Um, another band to check out is a feminist punk band from London called Big Joanie. Um The lead singer of this band actually has a TEDx talk about being a black feminist in punk, of course, called Oh Bondage of Yours, which you should <laughs> definitely check out. And you might not even think of them as punk, but two artists that I love that you should definitely check out if you've never <laughs> heard of them are Beyonce and Solange Knowles. Uh, Beyonce... You, used to really be thought of as, you know, just a pop musician. But with her seminal album Lemonade, she was actually nominated for a Grammy for her song Don't Hurt Yourself in the category of Best Rock Performance. And rock Performance. Yeah, I don't think people really know this about her, but that album really was a big step in terms of her branching out and sort of people opening their opening the door for other kinds of music to be considered um, rock
2: that track she co-created with Jack White from mm-hmm. White Stripes, right? So he or he was at least sampled on that track too. And he is like the White Stripes is a hundred percent rock. Oh, it. for sure, for so that sure, that makes a lot of sense.
3: Um, I know there was a lot of, fr- of noise when Beyonce was nominated in a, in a rock category from people who were probably super hardcore traditional rockers. <laughs> but according to Recording Academy senior vice president Bill Frymouth. He told Metal Injection, I think what we found this year is that so many artists that have, that were in rock or rock adjacent were taking more sonic risks this year than ever before and it made for a really exciting dynamic landscape in that field. That Beyonce recording has Jack White in it and it has Led Zeppelin samples and in it, I think it's Beyonce really stretching. It's an artist at the height of her musical powers and it's really reaching in many different directions and we're all better for it. And I just love yes. that quote. <laughs> it's... So great.
2: Sonic Risk. I love that. Let's all take more Sonic Risk.
3: Let's all be more like Beyonce in, in all the ways. ways. <laughs> um, and again, Beyonce isn't the only Knowles uh, family member who's known for taking those kinds of risks. Um, probably my favorite album of the last five years is Solange Knowles' A Seat at the Table. If you haven't listened to it, turn off this podcast and <laughs> put it on. It will change Remedy your life. Um, but basically she talks about how One of the seminal songs on that album was really rooted in exactly the kind of things that we're talking about, Um, the isolation that she felt as a black woman interested in punk and alternative music. So in an interview, she explains how the song FUBU really has punk rock roots. She says, when I think of FUBU and the album as a whole, I think of punk music and how white kids were allowed to be completely disruptive, allowed to be an anti-establishment and express rage and anger. They were allowed to have the space to do all of that, even if it meant being violent or destroying property, and that wasn't exactly inclusive to us if we created the groundwork for rock and roll. If we were inclusive and we were violent and destroying property and able to express that kind of rage, that it would not be allowed in the same way. And so even though FUBU is not a song that you might think of as traditionally punk, it really is rooted in exactly what we're talking about today, this feeling of isolation that a lot of um, black kids grow up feeling looking at their white punk counterparts. Mm.
2: And FUBU stands for something.
3: For us, by us.
2: And it reminds me of the way that we talk about protests a little bit. Yeah. Like I've seen that mirrored in, oh, this is such a peaceful, nonviolent protest full of white women on, uh, on the women's strike contrary to Black Lives Matter protests that have gotten violent in the past. And it's like, well, violence is not seen as threatening all the time when it comes from a white kid setting a a trash can on fire. Right. Whereas at a predominantly Black demonstration, like the same kinds of behaviors are framed really differently and seen as more threatening.
3: And think about, I've always, I think that's a great example. And I've always thought, you know, Threatening behavior yeah. gets threatening behavior. And so when I was at the Women's March, I didn't see things like tanks. I didn't see an oversized police presence. Right. And so if you go to a Black Lives Matter march or rally, the fact that those things are already there before it even starts, I think kind of becomes an indicator for what kind of climate they are already preparing for. Mm. It's like a ratcheting up that happens. Exactly. I'm both- Well, I think that's such a great point about
2: punk because punk is violent in its undertones, right? It's about expressions of anger and outbursts. And so creating a space for Black women in particular to buck gender norms and to buck racial norms of what's expected and what's tolerated in a really angry artistry um, is important.
3: Yeah, I mean, what's more punk rock than growing up in a situation where you are dealing with microaggressions all day long. I think back to myself coming home in junior high and turning on my stereo and just rocking the F out to some, <laughs> to some punk music and just getting that out at the end of the day. And I think it's important for black kids to be able to do that and have that space the same as their white counterparts. Yes.
2: So as Mindy listeners, we want to hear from you. What is your favorite way to rock out, to punk rock or... To let loose and let let your sort of music expression share your frustration with the patriarchy or with injustice. How are you musically uh, letting your punk flag fly nowadays?
3: So we want to hear from you, uh, black punk fans and punk fans of all of all stripes. Uh, you can hit us up on Instagram at stuff mom ever told you. You can tweet at us at mom stuff podcast, or you can send us an email at mom at howstuffworks.com.
1: So, here's something that some of you might find shocking. 95% of women don't feel good about their hair. But Pantene is changing that. Pantene's rosewater collection combats bad hair days with an innovative formula that uses rosewater derived from the petals and buds of the Rosa Galica plant. With Pantene's Rosewater Collection, I can really feel how much more hydrated my hair is. And it's sulfate, paraben dye, and mineral oil-free, which makes me feel good, because who needs all those additives? Experience something new and discover what's good with the Pantene Nutrient Blends Collection. This episode is brought to you by NBC's Good Girls. The new season of NBC's Good Girls is generating serious buzz.
0: Christina Hendricks, Retta, and Mae Whitman are hilarious as America's favorite moms turned
1: criminals. This show is the perfect blend of comedy, action, and romance.
0: No wonder critics call Good Girls your next TV addiction.
1: And Rotten Tomatoes rates it 100% fresh. Ooh, Good Girls, Sundays on NBC. The new season has already had some wild twists, so watch live. And stream anytime.